0: Well, my name's Eric Barton, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel downtown. I want to welcome you to worship as well. And this morning, unsurprisingly, I want to talk about God. When in church, you don't know what else to talk about. That's always a good starting point. Let's talk about God. But I wonder this week, as I've been reflecting on the last several months, have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you said, where is God? God, are you there? Now, some of us in our most pious, reflexive reactions would say, oh, I've never actually wondered that. There's never been a nanosecond ever that I wondered if God was there or if he was you know, busily acting on my behalf and my benefit. But for the rest of us, maybe you've begun to ask, hey, what is going on? Where is God in the midst of all of these natural disasters, all these social calamities? all of these microscopic things that are plaguing our planet? What's happening? Where is God? Or if he's there, I mean, what is he doing? Is he asleep at the wheel? Is he disinterested? Is he bored? Is he just disengaged? Is he too weak to act? Where is God? And it's important to be reminded that one of the things we say all the time at this campus is a quote from A.W. Tozer, one of my heroes in the faith. And he says, what we think about when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. And we have this wonderful volume of God's inspired word that is designed to increasingly influence and inform our theological thinking about God because it's the most important thing about us. We were to spend enormous amounts of time being equipped in advance to deal with those doubts that creep in, that make us wonder, is there God? If there is, what's he doing? Why isn't he making himself known to me so that I have comfort and confidence? Well, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so this morning, we're going to continue on. And indeed, Lord willing, we're going to conclude our sermon series in the book of Esther. And in this final sermon in the book of Esther sermon series, we're going to see that, well, although he's not expressly and explicitly named Oh, God is there. And in fact, all this week as I've been praying and preparing and planning through, what was I going to preach? How was I going to describe God? I kept saying, well, God is good. God is faithful. God is sovereign. God is wonderful. God is glorious. God is gracious. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. All these things. And it finally struck me, shut up. The point of this passage and indeed the point of the book of Esther is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. God is. (laughs) For some of you, right where you are, that is the singular truth of which you need to be reminded. God is, period. And in fact, that's his name. The Hebrews wouldn't even say it out loud. Yahweh. And it means I am I am the one that is. I am being itself. Remember, God is not his name. God is his job description. That's on his business card. His name is I am. God is. And so what happens when an entire people group recognize that? When they receive that and they reflect upon that? Well, we're going to hear a passage of Scripture read to us from the first floor by the Van Dyke family. I want you to hear the proclamation of the truth that God is. Let's go to the first floor. Good morning. My name is Anna. This is my husband, James. We've been going here about five years. Um, We have two kids, Laurel and Vincent. If you have not seen them, I'm sure you've heard them. Um, But we will be reading Scripture this morning, or James will, so I'll hand it over to him. Psalm 67, 1 through 7. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded, yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Just as a quick way of reminder for those of you who may not have been with us all this time, the miracle of stairs. Now, I find myself on the third floor. For those of you watching at home wondering, why did they just change the background? They didn't, they changed the foreground. I'm now on the third floor, and if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. We are going to be in Esther and in chapter 8. As we're in chapter 8 of Esther, I want to remind you, for those of you who may have slept since last Sunday, what's going on in the book of Esther. It is after the exile. God has imposed a 70-year exile on the nation of Israel. Israel, the son of God is dead. We hear stories about exile and Daniel being carried off in exile and we well that was a bad deal. That was a... Please understand in scripture Separation is death. Death means separation. Israel has been taken out of the land of promised blessing. Israel is functionally, practically dead. They've gone 900 miles to the east. They are separate from the land that God intended for them. But after those 70 years imposed because they never actually implemented the years of jubilee that God said, I want you to let the land rest every seven years, they never did it. So God said, okay, for every time you did not do that, there will be one year of separation, of exile. But after those 70 years, I am the Lord your God. I am faithful. I will restore you. I will bring my son to life. I will bring my son Israel back from the dead into prosperity, bounty, and blessing. Trust me, I will do this. Israel must die, but I, by my strong right arm, I will bring Israel back from death and restore life. But some of them said, "Now nah, we're good. Tens upon tens of thousands of Jewish people remained in the Persian Empire. They were told by the prophet Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city because when they prospered, the city would prosper and they themselves would receive blessing. And so they did. But then after the 70 years is over, God said, I want you to go back and I want you to be fruitful and productive and multiply back in the promised land. And they said, yeah, but here in Persia... I'm an orthodontist and I'm crushing it. I won't go back to Persia. No. And so tens and tens of thousands of them stayed. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah chapter two make it abundantly clear they were supposed to have left. So what happens when you find yourself not where you're supposed to be, not where the life God has for you to be productive and bountiful? Well, You might remember our story through these first seven chapters. There's a bad guy, and his name is synonymous with hatred. His name is Haman. Yes, you're supposed to hiss when you hear his name. And you remember, he's got this really awesome wife. Her name is Sneezy. (laughs) Zerach and Hamach. Hatred and sneeze. Wonderful wedding couple. You want to send all kinds of gifts to them on their wedding day. And they try to devise a plan, Haman does, to eradicate and annihilate the entire Jewish people. Last week, we looked at chapters 5, 6, and 7, where everything builds, the tension mounts, and the course is reversed. Haman is treated like a criminal. He is impaled on a stake, 75 feet high in the air. And it looks like the bad guy has won, and the good guys have or the bad guys lost, and the good guys have won, except for the fact that there's still this edict in place that within a matter of, hmm, say, nine months or so, the entire race of Jewish people in the Persian Empire, all 127 provinces, they're going to be annihilated. So this is a very serious deal. That brings us now, finally, to the climax, the culmination, and the conclusion of the book of Esther. So again, we're going to walk through this very, very briefly. Esther chapter eight. We're going to walk through these last two, uh, well, three chapters actually. So Esther chapter eight, beginning in verse one. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. That's how you treat a criminal is you take all of their house, all their belongings, all of their assets. You remove that from them. So his family is left destitute. That's kind of a big deal when you're the number two person in the entire kingdom to have your entire estate forcibly removed from you. And he gives it to Esther, the enemy of the Jews, loses his land. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So now everything's being revealed. Everything's being made to come clean. Remember, Esther is not her Hebrew name. That's taken from the Persian god Ishtar, what they would say the star Venus was their goddess of fertility. That's for whom Esther is named. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, a beautiful flowering bush. We don't even know Mordecai's Hebrew name. His Persian name is Mordecai from the Persian god Marduk. And so he has now been elevated and is given uh, authority over all this estate. And he tells the king that Mordecai is her older cousin. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, probably still warm from the dude. And I don't know what they do. Did they have to get a ladder and go up the 75 feet to get it off of him? Or are they smart enough to get it off beforehand? I don't know. Such things I wonder about. Verse two, the king took off the signet ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Ooh, the one guy in the kingdom who would not bow down now has all of his estate. Oh, the irony there. Verse three, then Esther spoke again to the king. She's not been beckoned or invited in, which is a capital offense, but now she's getting bolder. Look how this young woman has risen up. Remember, she's not the hero of the story, and yet God's going to continue to use her to do incredible things. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. The author of this, remember, is trying to tell the people who are back in Israel, who are engaged in temple worship in Jerusalem, that despite their faithlessness, God will still be faithful. And he's using Esther as that narrative illustration. Verse four, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, so yet again, she approaches the king. He's getting used to this by now and he likes her. And so she approaches all over again. Verse five, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if... The thing seems right before the king, and I am pleading in, pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Suddenly, she's identifying herself as one of these Jewish people that are under threat. Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, we kind of like this, but we kind of shouldn't. This guy was complicit in writing the order of Holocaust and genocide to annihilate an entire people group. And you might remember how the story ends in chapter four. He gives his ring and it's used to sign this edict and he blesses it and he thinks it's great fun. And so he and Haman, the author of the edict, sit down to party together and drink. So you would think, oh, this king now understands what's happened. He's understanding what a horrible thing he has done to his own wife, now he's gonna say, leave it to me, I'll handle this, I'll take care of this, I'll set things straight. But what does this king do? Here, here's my ring, you take care of it. This is not the kind of king that we want. This is not the kind of sovereign that we want to serve or to have watch care over our lives, not even close. Verse 9. Side little bit of trivia in case you're ever on Bible Jeopardy. If you are, you should get a life. But if you find yourself on Bible Jeopardy, quick trivia question Esther chapter 8, verse 9, we believe is the longest verse in your Bible. You should memorize it. Here we go Esther chapter 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, which is kind of like late June, early July for us. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. <sighs> Esther 8, 9. Put that on your letter jacket, young people. Very impressive. Mordecai does exactly what Haman has done. He writes this edict in his own hand. It's going to sign it with the king. It's a blank check, if you will. And it's going to go dispatched to all the provinces of the entire Persian Empire. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. These are race cars. This is the cream of the crop, the fastest horses in the empire, and they were adorned such that once they start to run and to move, it is illegal to impede them. They cannot be stopped. Once they are set free from the capital to dispatch uh, messages, they are not to be impeded or interrupted. It's that big of a deal. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Oof sounds very similar. Not to initiate an attack, but if they're attacked, they are to be able to organize and defend themselves. Verse 12, one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. So that's going to be middle of March. This is when this is all going to go in effect. You might remember that Haman cast lots 360 some odd times, and it finally came back the month of Adar. In the 12th day. Well, that's the middle of March. Well, now it's late June. So the Jewish people are going to have nine months, it just so happens, to prepare themselves for assault and for attack. Nine months. Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, this dude gets decked out in royal robes from Ashes and sackcloth, look how he's, what he's wearing now. Robes of uh, royal blue and white, those are the colors of Persia, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. That's interesting. When the first decree went out, you might remember the chapter ends, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. People were horrified at this announcement of Holocaust, but now they see Mordecai and all of the Persian Empire, hmm, is celebrating. The one who was supposed to have died was now alive, walking around in finery and glory, and the people rejoiced. That's coincidental, I'm sure. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was a gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. (laughs) It just so happened, all these Persian people go, that, I want in on that deal. Now, how sincere was their conversion? I have no idea. Probably some of them, it was a conversion of convenience, but they proselytize. They become Jews because you see, God is. Even though he's not named expressly, Even though we might not understand what he's doing, we are to be reminded that God is, and he is working. Well, very quickly now through chapter 9, here's the sort of uh, final battle, except it's really not so much of one. Now, I'm in the 12th month. This is the middle part of March, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. You might remember when Rahab told Joshua and the other spies who were coming into Jericho, the fear of you has fallen on all the people. That's right, because the Lord goes in advance. He sent his hornet, you might say. Not murder hornets, things weren't that bad, but still, the Lord sent his hornet before them. Verse 3, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps, that's the governors, and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed, and then we get a very specific list of names here. All these guys, verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. We're going to be told five different times that the Jews would not take the plunder. That had been Haman's plan all along. The Jews said, we're not going to do that. We're just going to defend ourselves. This is not about the cash. Verse 11, That very day, the number of those killed in Susa and the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? That's an exclamation. What in the world, he says. Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther, (laughs) lilting little flower that she is, ugh, Esther said, if it pleased the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. (laughs) Esther says, "Uh, well, I'm not done. I want one more day of killing, and I want that guy's 10 sons impaled on the same spike. Do not cross Esther. Now, here's a little sidebar. The rabbis maintain, as they would teach through this for centuries, that this is why this book is called Esther and not Hadassah. Because this is a bloodlust. This is a vengeance. This is above and beyond what was required or necessary. And so she is still referred to as Ishtar, the Persian goddess of fertility and of war. So I don't know that for sure. The writer of the text makes no comment there, but it's very interesting. She asks for an extra day of killing, and even though the ten sons of Haman, they're dead dead, she says, well, there's dead dead, and then there's having a stake up you dead. And so she has all of them publicly shamed in the citadel there. So the king, verse 14, commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were impaled. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, let me just make a quick commentary. If you are a Persian and you're not Jewish and you're in the capital of Susa and you get word that 500 of your countrymen were killed yesterday, and we're going to find out 75,000 Persians were killed throughout the empire yesterday, maybe you should just stay home tomorrow. Maybe you should just stay home and not go out and see what's going on. 300 more come out to attack the Jews. So I'm not going to say they got what was coming to them, but they are stupid. Like, you just kind of have to know the times and read the tea leaves and go, there's a whole lot of dead bodies out there. I think I'm just going to stay in and, and watch some Netflix. Nope, they went out, they got rocked. Verse sixteen. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. We're told five times they did not take the goods. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. But there's still a pretty significant thing that's missing here, is there not? Where is God? We don't really know, so we're just going to take matters into our own hands, and when it turns out well, we'll give ourselves credit, and we'll have a feast. Remember, this is a feast we're about to learn about that is not implemented by God. It is implemented by themselves. That's interesting. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make some days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. So essentially, this festival, this holiday, is making fun of their enemies. You rolled the dice, and it came up snake eyes for you. And so they call the holiday, the feast, the festival, poor because of the lots that Haman rolled. But when it came before the king... He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, that's the plural of poor, and the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and all of what they had faced in this matter and and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and the time appointed every year. So every spring, every March time frame, they will celebrate the feast of Purim. Verse 28. Oh, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Now there's some humor here that you might miss because you've slept since five weeks ago. We opened up our series in the book of Esther. You might remember that there was a king named Xerxes and he wanted to show his glory and he wanted to do so by parading his queen Vashti out in front of everybody. She declined. And so all the wise men of the empire came together and said, hey, we can't have this. You need to put her away or women will suddenly gain a voice and they'll stop listening to their husbands. (laughs) Esther 9, who's running the entire empire now? How'd that work out for you, boys? Let's make a decree that silences all women. Oops, now the queen has the edict and the signet ring and she's calling the shots and she's sending out messages throughout the empire. Boys, learn a lesson there. Be wise, be wise. Well, the shortest chapter you're going to find, Esther chapter 10, three short verses. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. The writer wants us to make sure we remember that Xerxes is still a powerful man, and so he taxes the entire empire. And all the acts of his power and might. And all the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitudes of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is God's word. That is the book of Esther. So what are we to learn from the book of Esther Well, I want to remind you that although God is never actually named, that God is. And clearly, he is working throughout the entire narrative. Providentially, behind the scenes, you might say, but God is. And when we're perhaps inclined to start believing all of the bombast from the culture around us that God isn't, or if he was, he would certainly behave in a different manner, We can look at the book of Esther and be reminded that God is. So two just very quick pieces or two very quick implications or applications from this final narrative. Number one goes like this. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purpose. And aren't you glad? God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purpose. Esther and Mordecai, for the longest time, were in hiding. They didn't let anybody know that they were Jews. And yet, God elevated them and used them to do precisely what He wanted, precisely what He had promised He would do, perfectly on time. And I want you to look particularly at Esther, who was, in a sense, because of her proximity and relationship to the king and loved by the king, she was saved. What a horror it would have been for Esther to simply say, Whew, man, that was a close one. I could have been picked off in that edict, but I'm saved. I'm good. But instead, Esther is a reminder to us that if we have been saved, and I pray that we have, that we plead with tears and, and weeping and intercession. We plead for our people. I know that there's a lot of things going on in our land right now and our tendency is to be pulled down with the gravity of our own depravity and begin to throw stones at people who disagree with us. I promise you, in 127 different provinces throughout the Persian Empire, there were probably some Jews that did not agree with one another about something. In fact, all of them probably disagreed with all of them about something. And yet, Esther is a great model She's an imperfect person that God uses for his perfect purpose. She pleads for their salvation. I wonder, as I was convicted this week, how long has it been since you have said, my God, my God, I cannot stand without beseeching you. Would you do for all of them what you have done for me? There's anger and animosity. There is tension. There is turmoil. Would you do for them what you have done for me? I didn't deserve to be saved, Esther could say. But would you do for them what you have done for me by grace? Because God will accomplish his perfect purpose and he will do so through imperfect people. There is nothing that disqualifies you from interceding on behalf of somebody else. Second point of implication. (laughs) There's a much bigger story. There's a much bigger story we have a tendency to read the book of Esther and go, okay, well, it's about Esther and she was probably, you know, really pretty and she won The Bachelor season two or whatever and we like her and she's a hero and the end of the story. No, 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 no. There is a much bigger story because Xerxes died and then his son Artaxerxes died and so some other calamity rose up And the tendency is to think, well, it's just the circle of life. It's just a cycle. It just goes on and on. Bad things happen. And then someone has to intervene. And then things get a little bit better. And then another generation, something bad happens. And here we go. It's just a cycle. Life's just a big hamster wheel. God forbid. History is driving and has always been driving to a certain point, even if we can't discern and detect it. There will come a time when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Leaders will rise, leaders will fall. It's not happenstance, it's not accidental. History is sovereignly being driven to a point. Whatever happens, and I want you all three floors and at home to look and listen, whatever happens in November, that person will ultimately die. And God will use our times to drive toward a historical climax. It's not just a cycle. It's not just a treadmill or a hamster wheel. We get the opportunity with the eye of faith to say, oh, God is doing a thing. He is driving to that point where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ. And so when you get discouraged, not if, when you get discouraged and you see all the hatred and all the harm and all the hurt, oh, 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 God is. And one day, and I pray soon, The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ. See, there's this wonderful typology where one who should have died, Mordecai, but was saved, who was walking around in glory, but who had previously been hated by the enemy. There was a king who desired to show off his glory, but was defied by his wife, we might say in the Old Testament, that would be Jehovah, who was defied by his wife, Israel. And so that wife temporarily set aside for a new bride who was to plead for others that God would do for them what he had done for others. The book of Esther is one part of a great, grand, wonderfully, eschatological end times culmination story. And so somehow, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, that you are just trying to follow the hamster wheel or the treadmill of life and just hope that things turn out a little bit better in the end than they are right now, I want to invite you to believe that there is one who is Jesus, who is good who himself became the curse of sin and was, you might say, impaled on our behalf. And I invite you to believe, to place all of your trust on that reality. For the rest of you, if you are a believer, I want to invite you all over again, as I said at the beginning, to trust, to really believe that he keeps no record of your sin and that he is driving to a historical And we are to have the eye of faith and to eagerly expect and anticipate. Let's pray together and then we'll go have a song on the second floor. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I do pray, God, if there's one or two or more here this morning that don't know you or who are even just wondering if you are and if you're good, Would you move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Would you intervene and do for them what you have done for me, for so many others here? Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that you will continue to encourage us that you are, that it is your name. And though your purpose may be veiled, we are to trust that you are good. So, Father, continue to lead us in worship as your people. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.